Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I am Keith Whittington, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by David French. David French is a senior editor of The Dispatch. He is the author of several books, the most recent of which is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation from St. Martin's Press. He was senior counsel for the Alliance Defending Freedom and for the American Center for Law and Justice, both conservative religious freedom advocacy groups. Uh, He served as president for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, uh, also known as FIRE. Uh, before stepping down to serve in the Iraq war. A longtime conservative intellectual, he has of late found himself in various internecine uh, disputes on the right, including on the question of the wisdom of the current wave of anti-critical race theory bills uh, being introduced in state legislatures across the country. He is also currently the co-host of the Advisory Opinions podcast, which focuses on constitutional and legal issues and might also be of interest to listeners of this podcast. So David, welcome to the Academic Freedom uh, Podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, your joining us and and talking about these uh, issues as well as your writing and advocacy on these kinds of issues uh, more more generally. I wanna get to the current controversy over critical race theory, but before we turn to that, Um, I thought I'd start with your history of involvement with campus free speech um, issues uh, more generally. Um, So I guess specifically, how'd you find your way to FIRE? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a good question. I started being interested in campus free speech issues from literally the first few weeks of my time at uh, law school. Uh, I, I had come from a very conservative Christian college in Nashville, and then was going to Harvard Law School, which is a little different. Um, and this was the early 1990s. So this was the age of the shout down in class. This was the sort of the first big wave of political correctness. And because there was no internet, there was no Twitter to cause weird things on in classrooms to trend nationally. I really didn't know what I was walking into. I mean, I, I was aware of a concept called political correctness, but um, walked into a world where the shoutdowns were real. I mean, um, people screaming, trying to drown you out in class if you spoke not radical stuff, just sort of conventional conservative um, speech. And, you know, things like when I was a, um, founded a pro-life group at the campus and, and when I uh, wrote a letter to the students, my, my fellow students about a, a particular policy that they, at Harvard that that you could opt out of if you had a conscientious objection to, you know, I get, I got the most amazing amount of, I'm not going to call them um, death threats, but they were like death aspirations. Like, why don't you go die, <laughs> right. you know, you effing fascist. And so I became very quickly acquainted with a environment that a lot of people would find to be pretty 
familiar in some places today. And in fact, you can go back and you can find a, an old article called Beirut on the Charles. And it was written, I believe, in 1993. And it could have been written in 2020. I mean, it, it just the, the kind of, of discourse at the time and the fury and the attempts to cancel people and destroy careers. And so that got me interested in free speech. Um, and, and really, I never lost the interest. And so going all the way back to uh, the late 90s, when I was really getting going in my law practice, um, I worked with FIRE on one of their first public controversies, trying to protect the existence of Tufts Christian Fellowship in uh, Tufts University in 1999 and 2000. And then I filed the very first um, speech code litigation in the FIRE speech code litigation project in 2003. And then in 2004, I became FIRE's president. So I had been involved before I became FIRE's president in speech code litigation and free speech controversies and free speech controversies as a student. And uh, so, yeah, by, by the, by 04, I, I, I felt like a, a veteran, but uh, by <laughs> looking back, I, I realized, I realized I was still a rookie. Oh, it's a, it's part of the amazing thing about FIRE's own history that when you talk to uh, the guys who founded FIRE, they initially thought it was going to be a temporary organization and it had some immediate needs and then it would eventually uh, could be rolled up and go away because <laughs> yeah. we get past the initial problem of speech codes and, and the like and and uh, this would all be over. Um, and instead, they're as, uh, busier than they ever have been. Oh, uh, bigger, yeah, bigger and, more and busier. Yeah. But so, I tell you, if you go back and you read uh, the book, and I, I would encourage people, if you really want to dive into the genesis of where we are now, go back and read The Shadow University. This was the book by Alan Charles Kors and Harvey Silverglade that really laid the foundation for fire. And some of those contra campus controversies will make your hair stand on end. I mean, um, we were involved in, I was involved in cases um, you know, in the late nineties, moving into the early mid two thousands that really are in many ways worse than things that I've seen of late. Um, but they're just, it wasn't a national issue. You know, you had to struggle for local news coverage on a lot of these things. And, and now, you know, uh, if a kid gets heckled in the quad, it's, it can trend nationally. And, and then, you know, we could have cases where, students were brought into star chamber proceedings and essentially told they had to change their belief systems to graduate and it might make local news. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah, there's a long history here. Yeah. The information environment surrounding these issues um, has, has changed quite dramatically, which, which to my mind makes it very hard to think about uh, the extent to which things have changed over time. Right. right? So, so one kinds of questions I'm sure you get, I get, uh, talking about these campus free speech issues. This is it worse now uh, than it used to be. And and part of my reaction to that is to think, well, everyone didn't have a phone in their pocket 20 years yeah. ago. And so uh, who knows how much of this kind of stuff was happening and how widespread it was uh, 20 years ago compared to now, because there's so much of it was under the radar. It wasn't reported on. People didn't notice or, or pay attention. Um, and then on the other hand, we also get sort of outsized influence, particular events that occur now where it's easy to imagine it's happening all the time because you saw pictures of it happening yeah. once. And so it's just very hard to get a good handle on how common are these problems and, and how, how do they change over time? There is some empirical um, 
evidence of some improvement. And one of yeah. those, one of that, uh, one piece of evidence is the diminishing percentage of clearly unconstitutional speech codes. Right. So we have many fewer clearly unconstitutional speech codes on campus than we used to. And we also have many more state free speech laws, for example. So that's one area where there's been some concrete positive um, impact. But I agree with you. And also it's even hard to go by the number of complaints say that fire gets because yeah. Uh, in 2004, 2005, fire was much less prominent. Yeah. I mean, we really had to do a lot of work to make people aware of our existence. And now, thanks to fire's incredible work for a long time, it's pretty well known. I mean, it's funny. I I get more I get more folks who are uh, recognizing in my la in my circle when I I more folks recognize fire now than they did when I was president of fire. <laughs> I had to introduce right. fire to them. <laughs> right, right. And so there, these issues have a lot more prominence, but that's in no way to say that we don't have serious academic freedom issues. We do. I think it's just hard to know the magnitude yeah. compared to pre uh, the previous generation. Yeah. Yeah, fire is particularly known for its defense of, of student speech rights, um, although they do also do and have long been involved in defending uh, speech rights of professors um, as well. Um, so during that time period when you were particularly heavily involved in, in these kind of litigation projects involved with fire uh, specifically, um, uh, what did you see as being sort of the balance between those two types of cases? How, how often did, did these issues involve professors as opposed to students? Well, I will say this. We had a lot of professor inquiries, mm -hmm. but very few professors willing to sort of make a public stand. Yeah. Um, so the students were much more willing to sort of like saddle up and, and go to battle against their, their university. And the professors were much less willing. Um, right. You know, there were, there was more than one instance where I would talk to a professor who'd be in there and they would have tenure. Right. They would be in their office and they would be talking to me in hushed tones, lest right. anyone overhear them. And this is, again, going back 15 years. You yeah. know, six, and, and so um, we did have um, some professor litigation, <clears throat> excuse me, and including what I think is either the first or one of the first cases where we actually won a jury trial on behalf of a professor who had been denied a promotion because of his political point of view. And that was Mike Adams. Mm -hmm. who, sadly committed suicide um, during the pandemic. And in that case was, you know, it, it's understandable why people would have reluctance to challenge their school. He won, he won, he got his promotion. He got all of the back pay that he was due. You know, he was vindicated, but the whole process also took seven years. So yeah. that's a hard, hard thing to endure. Um, you know, when you're, when your professional reputation and your professional um, you know, and your peer relationships are on the line. And so I have consulted with a lot of professors. I have not litigated on behalf of a lot of professors. Yeah, I think that's really an underappreciated phenomenon is the extent to which uh, the, the things you see in public uh, where faculty are willing to go public about these issues is really just the tip of the iceberg and that there's just a uh, tremendous amount of controversy in which uh, the professors really would prefer that it stay under the radar if they can, yeah. if they can make it happen. Um, but makes it very hard to resolve it favorably right. uh, for them under those circumstances as well, well and benefits it, the university. 
And one thing that I think some people, well, you know, it depends on how steeped you are in a lot of these academic freedom issues. Those who are deeply involved in it will not be surprised by this, but those who kind of look at it from a distance might be that some of the folks who are most afraid and most unwilling to go forward were people who were center left. Right. Um, the yes, of course, I talked to conservative or libertarian professors who expressed concerns, but there was much less of this sort of palpable sense that I can lose my whole community um, when I was talking to conservative professors who often found sort of their core community outside of the university than when I was talking to folks on the center left who felt like if they speak their mind, they could lose, you know, not just a professional reputation, but all, the, all of the personal or many of the personal relationships that matter to them most. And so there was almost a greater fear palpably that I felt from more center left professors on, on, on occasion than from center right or more conservative professors. Yeah, I think people on the outside often think of this as being a right wing issue. And in part, it seems to get more attention and focus from, from that perspective. But um, uh, certainly one thing we found in, in trying to put together the Academic Freedom Alliance was the extent right. to which uh, faculty on the political left were just as interested uh, in these issues and just as worried about uh, the situation and, and where we are um, as faculty on the right. And so very eager to uh, find better ways to protect their own, their own academic freedom. Well, um, for example, I wouldn't categorize Heterodox Academy. Right which is a, a, an, an incredibly vital um, institution, I would not characterize that as a right-wing dominated institution. Right. Um, it's a lot of professors from across the political spectrum who are deeply concerned about the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, no, it's worrisome. Although one thing you point to is, is the concern of faculty on the left who are sometimes worried that they're getting pressure from, uh, from the left uh, about their speech. Um, that they might lose a lot of personal and professional relationships um, uh, as, the, as that controversy plays out. Um, uh, but of course, it's also true that they are sometimes confronted with pressure from the political right, often coming from oh, yeah. off campus in those, in those circumstances. And th that's a little bit less of their calculus about how are people locally going to react to that. But there's um, uh, certainly concern about sort of not only sort of these mobs that organize themselves on campus, and often those mobs are from the left, but also sort of mobs, virtual or real, uh, from uh, the right that are organized off campus. Oh, yeah. Make no mistake. There's a cancel culture economy on the right. I mean, there, there, there are people and, and personalities and institutions who make a name for themselves in part by finding some radical professor at such and such community college, focusing public outrage on them. Um, driving them out of a job. I mean, this this kind of thing happens on the right and has happened with a distressing amount of frequency, quite frankly, over the last several years. Um, there's always a market in right-wing media for the crazy professor story, right? right? And then that gets the boards, you know, you know, that gets boards involved, that gets politicians involved. And, you know, often what was what happens is a kind of a version of right-wing cancel culture unfolds. Yeah, I've, I've found some of the things you've said about your own experience on this front, especially since 2016 and sort of the rise of the Trump movement is sort of eye-opening about the kind of harassment you've gotten, which I think is um, reflective of the kind of harassment uh, people in, in all kinds of other professions, including academia, wind up getting right. when they run afoul of these kinds of um, uh, organizations and interests and, and attract some attention um, on, on these dimensions. It can be... Uh, uh, quite hair raising. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, I was, I was talking to somebody um, 
few months ago who had been doing a lot of work in the um, developing world dealing with civil strife and civil conflict. Right. And they had begun to pull some of their resources into the United States because they were seeing, seeing some of the same kind of cultural pathologies that they'd seen in, in countries um, you know, across the globe that were facing problems of civil strife. And one of the things that this person told me was revolutionary movements or radicalizing movements often target the in-group moderate for particular hatred, more so even than the other side, because there's such a perceived need of consolidation and mobilization that in-group dissent is viewed with particular disdain. And I think it's one of the reasons why cancel culture truly is more effective in-group versus out-group. It's really harder for the left to cancel the right or for the right to cancel the left because they both have their own sort of uh, ecosystems and economies and media economies that can sustain the, the base. Um, but the right can cancel the right and the left can cancel the left. And, yeah. and we do see that happen with some frequency. Yeah, yeah. Um... Um, so I don't want to go down this road too far, but I guess I, I do want to ask about that sort of broader um, sort of issue about the nature of American society and sort of where we are, because I think it has implications for the sort of particular situation of universities and uh, these free speech principles are, are not unique to the campus context, um, but are um, uh, broader sets of concerns that are um, uh, been battled, uh, I think, currently in, in the United States. And, and so in recent years, you find yourself... Um, arguing with fellow conservatives over the importance of liberal values to American conservatism, um, right. uh, or perhaps might, what might be called uh, classical liberalism. Um, do you consider yourself a classical liberal? How would you characterize um, yourself? And why do you think um, liberalism finds itself under um, so much pressure these days within the conservative movement? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, look, if you're gonna get into the weeds of my ideology and, and because, a lot of times now words like conservative, yeah. they don't quite mean what they, there's no real consensus about what that means anymore. Right. And it certainly should never be a synonym for Republican because um, the Republican ideolo ideology is quite malleable. It's, I don't think it should be a synonym for Trumpist because <laughs> that you know, movement to me was an anathema uh, uh, to a lot of what I believed about conservatism. But I would say I'm a pro-life classical liberal. Mm -hmm. Is that maybe perhaps the most precise way of classifying myself? Um, I'm, you know, quite civil libertarian. In other words, I'm as, as um, zealous advocate of the Bill of Rights as sort of the fundamental basics, a building block of the American social compact. And then when it comes to, say, economic policy, I would call myself libertarian-ish um, in the sense that I'm deeply suspicious of the e efficacy of central planning. Um deeply, you know, um, concerned about unintended consequences of sweeping um, government programs. Uh, so, you know, I, I can be convinced uh, about various kinds of, of government policies, uh, but I'm approaching with a, uh, you know, a various kinds of government interventions in the economy and in our social structure, but I, I, I approach with a, a bit of skepticism. Uh, but I'm definitely civil libertarian in my sort of core political convictions and constitutional convictions. And, you know, regarding sort of this new right view uh, that is rejecting a lot of this small L liberalism. And, you know, I, it's really interesting. It's very hard. You, you will often get uh, people who can wax quite eloquent about sort of 
what do they see are the flaws in classical liberalism? It gets less clear though, the more you move into, okay, concretely, how do you want to replace this? What do you want to replace this with? And I think that a lot of that is still being worked out by people on this sort of new right. But at the same time, I think what we're dealing with is a movement that has a particular vision of American decline and a particular vision of sort of cultural retreat. And I think that they view that the government is the only significant cultural power center left that the right can have influence over. And so therefore, it's almost as if this is a movement of last resort that that um, the right doesn't have influence in um, Hollywood. The right doesn't have influence in the academy, you know, in pop culture, but it does have the ability to win elections. And so therefore, if we're concerned about cultural decay on all these, uh, in all of these areas, then all we got is government. So, which I think is an extremely wrong (laughs) prism through which to view the situation. But I do think that if you're if you're of this sort of point of view that says like everything is retreat across all fronts right. and all we've got left is the government, then it drives a lot of people to start thinking about using the government in ways that they hadn't previously considered. Yeah, right, right. Uh, if all you have is a hammer, it's hard looking right, for, exactly, for nails exactly. at that level. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, one of the one of the problems that we have is that a lot of the decline narrative um is misplaced. I right. mean, you know, there's a, I mean, let's just take one of the, uh, you know, I said, uh, mentioned that as pro-life. I mean, right. abortion right now is at a lower rate than it was before Roe when it was illegal in, in or sharply limited in most states. I mean, uh, divorce rates are decreasing. Um, you know, uh, unwed parenting is decreasing. Um, crime, although we've had a spike in violent crime in the last 18 months or so, is way below, way below highs 30, 40 years ago. So a lot of these social metrics that are being, you know, that are sort of core measurements of the health of families and individuals are actually have been improving in, in recent years. And, and so, so a lot of that tells me that, in fact, the cultural picture is a lot more mixed a lot more mixed. Um, yeah, absolutely. On some, in some, by some measures, the culture has gotten a lot more progressive. But not, by other measures, it's gotten more conservative. It's, um, it's, it's not quite the relentless march of the cultural left that cannot mm-hmm. be resisted. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so you and I are about the same age. Uh, you were at Harvard Law School in the early '90s. I was at graduate school at Yale um, at about the same time, um, and that's also seemed to be about when conservatives began to relentlessly focus on political correctness um, on college campuses, and we sort of developed this sort of um, uh, great appetite in conservative media yeah. uh, for for the crazy campus uh, stories. Uh, initially, with waves of books by people like Charlie Sykes and Dinesh D'Souza and David Horowitz. Um, early on, and we keep yeah. seeing more and more books and, and lots of additional attention um, on uh, problems um, uh, on, on American campuses. Um, why do you think conservatives have become so interested uh, in what's happening on college campuses? Why is there this kind of uh, uh, immense appetite for, for the crazy campus stories? Well, there's two reasons, I think. One, colleges are influential. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, um, but I will say this, the 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 importance of these stories and the importance of campus 
is not something that that came naturally to talk to understanding the importance of what was happening on campus. I can just say as somebody who was out fundraising on these matters 17 years ago, this is not something that sort of everyone naturally adopted to, uh, or naturally uh, adopted the view that this this is really important. A lot of the view 17 years ago was these stories are crazy and then they'll, these guys will enter the real world and then they right. get a rude awakening and things sort of revert to, to type or to some version of normality. And it's only recently that people have really understood that, um, you know, particularly, you know, that educational institutions have huge cultural influence across corporate America, across, you know, pop culture, et cetera. But always, always there's a market for stories of crazy uh, ridiculousness on the other side. Like it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, it, it's back years ago, I used to joke with people about how sometimes it felt like Huffington Post made part of its living by finding the craziest Republican state legislator in America and writing about them. And or and and there's always a crazy right. le state legislator somewhere. Right. Right. Um, so there's always a market for the kind of stories that make you feel like the other side is unstable or weird and and. Believe you me, there are some stories from campuses that are weird, <laughs> that are bizarre. I mean, right. um, you know, I, we had no shortage of those kinds of cases at fire and and the kinds of things that if you repeat it to somebody who's not sort of steeped in this microculture yeah. on these campuses, they go, what? What are you talking about? Which is one of the reasons why, quite frankly, we it was un, we mostly did not have to sue. Mm -hmm. to defend the rights of students, cl student clients uh, at FIRE and then later at ADF, because all you had to do is publicize the event. And then the university would be, university right. council would step in and say, do you really want to do this? Right, right. Um, so there's, but there's always a market for stories that make the other side look bad. And my goodness, you know, you comb through this campus world and you'll find the stories you want to find. And, you know, just like the Daily Show, has a uh, you know on the left has a little cottage industry of going to this conservative rally or that conservative school board meeting or this thing, and you can stick a microphone in someone's face and they can say something wild and you can say, "See, look what they're like. Look what they're like." There's always a market for the "look what they're like" story. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of uh, net picking that goes on and in, in telling these uh, kinds of stories. And as you say, you can focus on sort of individual. There's lots of individual state legislators and, and politicians out there that you can attract a lot of attention to when, when they say something uh, particularly outrageous. And and likewise, there's an awful lot of college professors out there. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and a lot of them are on social media. And so you can you can find them saying things, and, the, and then you can hold that up as an example and say, well, see, that's what they're all like. Um, uh, judged by this this one snippet of a quote that I've taken and, from a and Twitter. some of the scholarship is wild, right. you know. Some of the arguments are wild um, that that you really. I mean, you know, I grew up in the rural South, and sure. and I'll never forget walking past my first drum circle, you know, in in Cambridge, and I'm thinking, what are they accomplishing here? Like, what what's right. happening here? And so there's sort of that. There, you know, any culture that gets sort of um, sufficiently that, that sort of becomes sufficiently insular mm -hmm. is going to begin to have radicalized manifestations of it and, and sort of radical. And this this goes to sort of the Cass Sunstein 
um, conception of the law of group polarization, that any group of like-minded people tends to get more extreme over time. And some of these campuses can be pretty extreme. Right, right. Uh, yeah, often certainly uh, fairly homogeneous in their uh, political outlook, and and uh, that, that does uh, tend to encourage some of this uh, ext extremity and, and uh, people uh, following a particular path. Um, I, on the other hand, I think conservatives have they paid a lot of attention to um, uh, campuses and and just recently have become more interested in free speech issues. So as you know, when you were sort of first off trying to raise money for, on these issues, it yeah. was hard to get uh, conservative donors, for example, to be very interested in actually um, uh, taking up these issues. I think there's uh, more media attention, but also more sort of substantive political action relating to sort of campus free speech issues. Years ago, um, everybody was all focused on the fact that a lot of state legislatures were adopting bills designed to protect campus free speech. Um, right. And um, and some people had complaints about some of those uh, bills, but it's not a lot of state legislatures seem very focused on how do we be more protective of uh, free speech on campus. Um, now, state legislatures are all very interested in trying to figure out uh, how do we suppress critical race theory uh, <laughs> right. on college campuses as well as in other kinds of educational institutions. These two instincts don't necessarily fit together uh, no. very well. Um, and so one natural thing it raises is sort of a question of how sincere do you think the conservative commitments to campus free speech really are. So is this just an indication that we all are sometimes tempted to um, fall away from our principles when it comes to free speech issues? Or is this an indication um, that the campus free speech stuff was never very serious in the first place? So I would say this, I mean, um, and there were an awful lot of conservatives who were engaged in the campus free speech fight because it was conservatives who they believed were being censored and yeah. progressives who were doing the censoring. Mm -hmm. You know, but one of the things at FIRE, we made very clear, and I made very clear when I was president, and FIRE makes this very clear now, is look, if you're supporting FIRE, you're supporting the defense of free speech, period. I mean, we will defend a far, far left person. We will defend a far right person. The question is, is there is there protected liberty interest being violated? That's the question, not their ideology. So that was a position made very clear. And a lot of conservatives enthusiastically adopted that position for yeah. a long time. Um, that is degrading. Um, that's degrading now. And it, but it's not just degrading in college campuses. It's sort of degrading across the board. So, for example, we're seeing... Um, a lot of interest in undoing and, and rolling back the notion of corporate free speech. Yeah. Um, so this is going right along parallel with um, legislation. So Florida, for example, you know, passes legislation aimed straight at social media moderation and in interfering in private corporate social media moderation. At the same time, Florida also has an initiative trying to take aim at CRT in classrooms, et cetera. So again, this goes back to what you were earlier saying is a more of a focus on using government power to try mm -hmm. to win culture war issues. And so what you found was for a lot of people, not everybody, certainly, right, but sure. for a lot of people, free speech was just a, a weapon to, that was useful when it could be wielded against the left. But if it if free speech helps is seen as helping the left, well, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be as committed to that anymore. And, and you, you've, I've had a lot of experience in the last few years with this kind of free speech statements that I often heard dealing with campus left uh, folks on the campus far left that would say, I like free speech, but yeah, yeah. 
And so you hear that a lot on the right now. I like free speech, but in, whenever you're having a free speech conversation, the only words that matter are the words, words that come after the but. Those are the right. only words that matter. And, and so it's, you're seeing an increased um, desire to use um, the power of the state to shape culture by limiting exposure um, to ideas or by using the power of state to minimize the ability of other pr of private actors to run their own corporation in, mm. in, a, in a way that they see fit. Um, so to get more into the specifics of the critical race theory uh, debate and uh, or more specifically the debate over legislation relating to something that gets labeled as critical race theory. Right. And we don't necessarily need to uh, unpack um, uh, uh, whether or not things are being accurately called critical race theory when they're being labeled right. this way. I think in some ways, uh, some of the uh, participants in these debates, um, both the larger political debate as well as these legislative debates, wind up talking past one another because it's sure. not clear they're all talking about the same thing. Um, but nonetheless, what we do certainly have are a bunch of state legislatures that are uh, debating laws. Some have already passed some laws. Uh, they're designed to um, uh, suppress uh, various things in education, particularly in the K through 12 context, um, but sometimes in the state university context, um, and some of it running under a label um, of critical race theory. Um, so can you describe for us what the current brouhaha is about um, these uh, these uh, state legislative proposals? And, and I guess I should say broader political proposals, because they're not all just um, things state legislatures are doing, but we also have seen some attorney generals get into the act yeah. um, at the state level. We've seen uh, some board of regents uh, get into the act um, at the state level uh, now as Trump well. Trump administration yeah, got into for the sure. act. Yes, absolutely, right? Some of it really launches with the Trump executive order late in his uh, presidency on this question. Right, so boy, this is, let's try to make, make this as, as concise as possible. Um, there's been an explosion of concern, I would say ever since, um, late 2020, it's hard to, I guess the Trump EO would be the time period when it really began to ramp up, but beginning with the Trump executive order banning the, what purported to ban, um, critical race theory, the, the teaching of critical race theory and the federal government and even amongst private contractors, which was part of that order. So what's essentially happened is there has been widespread concern in, um, that, Critical race theory, which is typically off very hazily defined, um, is being in, uh, is being indoctrinated that that at, at K through twelve and college levels that critical that that kids are being indoctrinated with critical race theory, a theory that teaches that white people you know just to oh, this is sort of the caricature of yeah. it that teaches that white people are so there's inherently wrong with white people that our our country is just fundamentally and irredeemably racist. Our, our history is fundamentally and irredeemably racist. Our institutions and structures are fundamentally and irredeemably racist. And that um, going further than that, that one of the problems is with America's liberal mer uh, liberalism itself, small l liberalism itself, uh, meritocracy is a fiction. And that what is required is sort of a fundamental remaking and rethinking of the entire American experiment to, to create equity as opposed to equality, but equity. And so it's sort of a, a very blunt way in which it's being described to um, Americans who are not previously familiar with it. So 
And so essentially what ends up happening is that if you hear anything, and, and Chris Rufo has said this in tweets, yeah. if you hear anything that you think sounds weird or strange or crazy on in the topic of race, that's going to be labeled critical race theory. And then sort of be a part of this effort to, to suppress it from and push it out of the American educational system. And so what's ended up happening is that has created an enormous amount of public alarm, and especially in right-leaning circles, um, some of it based on actual outrages, you know, that you will see young kids in a public school system in this state or this city being taught some pretty outrageous stuff about race. Um, you know, you'll see some diversity, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion training programs that are almost like a caricature of critical race theory that will, um, you know, place people into racial affinity groups that will, you know, um, put people on privilege walks. I mean, th these things actually exist and many of them are so actually so outrageous as to in all likelihood violate civil rights law by being racially discriminatory. Um, but there's been little sense of how widespread it is, for example, how much does it actually exist in your own local school? And so there was big, there was a, a rush to try to ban critical race theory. And so um, because critical race theory is such a slippery concept to define concisely, it's, it's got a lot of different branches, a lot of different scholars, a lot of those scholars will argue with each other. Um, they instead began to ban the, um, not just the advocacy of certain specific concepts, but the inclusion of these concepts in courses. And some of the concepts, you know, so the, the concept, it might be the idea that one race is inherently superior to another, uh, which is a concept that if taught in class would, would violate civil rights law. Right. <laughs> but it began to, the, these concepts, um, there were a variety of these concepts that were attempted, that, that schools attempted or legislatures attempted to ban. And that the breadth and the vagueness of these statutes began to be very, very concerning. They weren't just replicating the requirements of civil rights law, for example. They weren't just replicating the requirements of the First Amendment, which prohibits, for example, compelled speech. They were going way beyond that, and they were both under-inclusive and over-inclusive. They were under-inclusive in the sense that they weren't banning critical race theory. Right. They weren't. But they were over-inclusive in that they were banning kinds of conversations and, and, and uh, instruction that even the legislators themselves would say, we didn't intend to ban. Right. And so they were very sloppily written. Um, they would have a profound chilling effect and wouldn't even accomplish the goal that they were drafted to accomplish. Other than that, they were fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and to that so, degree, you know, they share some of the same features of the campus speech codes, which oh, had some, some of these same issues that they were both over-inclusive and under-inclusive. They were vague about what they covered. They often found themselves covering things that the people who drafted them would prefer not to have covered. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah. Exactly. You know, so for example, one of the things that they would cover is this idea that um, there's any, you know, that any person should feel negative about, you know, for example, about their race right. uh, or their identity, but the, they were written in such a way that you were allowed, that you could not even include as a concept, 
as a concept, just like as an abstract notion and, or an idea, just the concept as part of a course that, and I'll, I'll read you, uh, I'll read you this paragraph. Whites, it must frankly be said, are not putting in a similar mass effort to re-educate re themselves out of their racial ignorance. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe that they have so little to learn. So that would be banned. That be, um, putting that as a reading in a course would be banned. Well, who who wrote that? That's Martin Luther King Jr. in the book Where Do We Go From Here? And so did they really want to ban Martin Luther King Jr.? Right, right. <laughs> no, they didn't. I mean, if you right. put him, they would say, no, 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 no. We don't mean Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so again, you're, which you can agree or disagree with what King said, but including that writing, the book, you know, where do we go from here in a course for 11th graders? Is that illegal now? Yes, right. in fact, it's illegal in some states. And so if you go by the actual language of the law themselves, uh, the, uh, the, the language of the laws themselves. And so um, that's, you know, among the objections that I had. So, so just taking up that uh, particular concern is, is, so one thing that I think the, uh, your critics uh, want to argue is that uh, you're overreading the statutes or taking them too literally and not seriously uh, in, in some cases, or in some cases you, you aren't uh, paying sufficiently uh, close attention uh, to the details of the text. To what degree do you think that it's possible for these uh, statutes uh, trying to do what they're trying to do to be cleaned up in a way that they avoid some of these problems? Or are these um, unavoidable problems with the kind of thing they're trying to accomplish? Or is it just the fact that the way state legislatures have done it so far has just been particularly sloppy and, and badly drafted? I, I think the, the if your goal is to ban critical race theory, the problem is unavoidable. Okay. Yeah. So if you're sitting there trying to ban the teaching of an idea, that is a complicated idea that has many, many offshoots. Good luck writing that law. Right. I mean, good luck with it. Uh, good luck making it sensible in a way that ordinary people can understand it and apply it without sweeping more broadly than you intend. So if, you're, if your intention is, in my state, critical race theory is not going to be taught, you know, just and and you're and you're doing that not by saying here's a specific curriculum right. that has a point of view on American history and and sociology etc that we think is the best point of view on history and sociology for our um, young people, but instead by saying we're going to ban this idea, it's just that's talk to all of the people who drafted speech codes in the 80s and 90s in college campuses, yeah. right <laughs> and. So I, I, Ramesh Panuru, my, my former um, National Review colleague and friend, put it really well in this piece he wrote in Bloomberg. Um, he said that the more precisely these laws are written, the less they will prescribe and the easier they will be to evade. Right. So if you're going to make them precise enough to where you can, you know, you can know what they prohibit um, and make them constitu not constitutionally problematic without a big chilling effect, they're just not gonna do much. They're just right. not gonna do much. And right. so um, what I was trying, and then the other thing here that I think is really important for people to realize is when parents have problems with curriculum, um, frequently race is not part of their problem set. 
you know, if you're looking, you know, I was talking to a state legislator the other day who was really vexed by this because he said, I have, I have constituents calling and demanding that I pass critical race theory legislation, but all of the examples that they bring to me are about gender and gender identity. Right. Um, and these bills don't do a darn thing about that, which right. is why I keep going back to this curriculum argument that, look, the real beef, the real issue here is the curric- what is the curriculum? And school boards have authority over curriculum um, and, and school board and parents should have input into how school boards use that authority. And that is a much more comprehensive and also constructive way of engaging in this debate than saying, here's this idea that I don't really fully understand, that I don't know how is how I don't know how prevalent it is in my state. And but by golly, I'm gonna ban it. Right. Um, that's got real problems. And and it's part of a sort of the online dysfunction of mm-hmm. the moment that all of a sudden it became all the rage for what right. two months. Right, right. <laughs> you know. And so um but you know, educational issue, and also the other thing is, um, if if we're perceiving, you know, if you're if there is a moment of discontent right now in American public education, which there is for a lot of reasons, and CRT issues are only one of them, handling of the pandemic, the teachers' unions' recalcitrance and getting back in the classroom, a lot of these issues. If you're going to seize that moment, shouldn't you seize it for something like more school choice, right. more so than here's our poorly drafted speech code. (laughs) And so um, it just, it, it was, uh, you know, my, you know, in my view, they really were harmful to the marketplace of ideas. They were poorly drafted to the extent they applied to colleges or private institutions that were flatly unconstitutional, like lay down hand, easy, unconstitutional. So you want to unpack that a little bit? Because that's certainly that's part of where I wanted to turn was was the to it. So some of these bills, certainly that what was motivating them was a lot of discussion about K through 12 education. And some of them were focused primarily on K through 12 education. um, But but at least some of them and and quite a few of them uh, either uh, specifically or or just through the vague language wound up including universities and colleges as well. So to what degree from a sort of legal perspective, for example, sort of laying aside some of the policy uh, concerns, if, if these things were more tightly focused on K through 12 education and left universities alone, uh, to what degree do they avoid the legal problems? And to the extent that they do talk about universities, what exactly are the legal problems? Yeah, okay, so let me go with the K through 12 scenario. So public K through 12 school Schools. Teachers, there's a case called Garcetti v. Sabalas, which is a uh, Supreme Court case that, at the risk of oversimplifying, basically says if you're speaking as a public employee, so if you if you're speaking in your role as a public employee, your speech in that context has minimal to non-existent First Amendment protections. So, if I'm a ninth grade or a fourth grade social studies teacher. And I'm speaking and I'm and I am engaging and teaching as part of my job. I just don't have the academic freedom, First Amendment right that a college professor has. And that's sort of the weight of the authority right, right now is that if I'm in K through 12 and I'm speaking in my capacity as a K through 12 teacher, I just don't have the same free speech rights in right. that capacity that a college professor does. And and um 
And so, but, but that does not mean necessarily that whatever I, whatever I draft is going to be constitutional if I'm a legislator, sure. because there's still a doctrine sort of uh, called uh, vagueness doctrine, a, a, a law. It's sort of a, I have a due process interest in being able to understand the laws that apply to me. Right. <laughs> and if the law is written in such a way as that I can't reasonably can conclude or can figure out what is banned behavior and what's permitted behavior, you know, I may have a constitutional issue there. And also there are some um, circuits that recognize a right to learn. In mm -hmm. other words, a student has a right to obtain certain kinds of information. So it's a little bit more complicated than saying right. constitution, no constitutional concern K through 12. But I would right. say in general, K through 12, the state is going to have much more ability to regulate um, uh, teacher speech. And so the question then is not so much one of constitutionality as it is of prudence. Right. Is this good policy? When it comes to colleges, there has absolutely been recognized a First Amendment right, an academic freedom interest that professors have in teaching and scholarship. This is sort of the consensus view. This is something, an issue I litigated after right. Garcetti v. Sabalas. And so um, when you're talking about a um, uh, these laws, they are not viewpoint neutral. <laughs> they prohibit they attempt to prohibit the inculcation or even the instruction in certain viewpoints right um a viewpoint discriminatory state standard is almost always going to be unconstitutional on its face just right. almost always and this is one of the problems you had among many with college speech codes is uh, they would. They were often vague. They were often overbroad. But they also often were viewpoint discriminatory. And so, if there's one, if there, if you're a First Amendment litigator and a client calls and they say, "Here's my fact pattern," and the fact pattern says the state has tried to ban private, uh, has tried to ban either private citizens or even its public employee professors from in advocating a particular viewpoint, your eyes light up because you're you're winning that case. So how much space do you think state legislatures have to intervene in curriculum matters at the level of universities? Um, so, so as you say, there's a lot of space and a lot of discretion mm -hmm. to, to make policy for uh, K through 12 education. Uh, statutes might not be the best way of doing it in general, uh, but, um, but there's a lot of authority there. Um, uh, does that mean then is, uh, it, that it's completely hands off when it comes to state universities, or do you think there's a uh, constitutional space there uh, for legislatures that are really unhappy about what state university is doing to uh, intervene? Yeah, you know, um, when it comes to banning ideas at state universities, the legislature's hands are going to be really tied, pro appropriately so. Mm -hmm. um, However, that doesn't mean that, for example, the state university, the state legislatures have to decide that they're going to fund every single program that the university wants to offer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, there has been um, efforts, for example, to rein in the growth of spend, state spending on all of the various diversity officers and, you know, those kinds of things where we've had just extraordinary growth in spending on administrators and, and administrative expenses. And often that stuff is highly ideological. Um, and so look at it this way. If you're explicitly targeting ideas in higher education, you're going to have a heavy lift. Right. If you're saying, hey, we want, say, Tennessee Tech to spend, you know, 
X amount of dollars on its engineering program and Y amount of dollars on its um, ethnic studies program, because our goal is to make this a premier technical school, right. <laughs> for example, that's a, that's a different kind of thing. But then at the same time, these college presidents often have the ability to go out and raise money. Yeah. And, yeah. and they can, they can fund their, you know, they can decide to fund centers and to fund faculty lines and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's complicated, but the more that a state legislature starts to look punitive against a viewpoint, um, the greater the chance at, in higher education, the greater the chance that's not going to survive in court. Right. Um, uh, so, so let me push up a bit on sort of thinking about um, uh, state legislatures and public universities to think about the uh, somewhat more specific university context, which is also found itself in the news uh, about the critical race theory stuff, which is the military academies. Um, so, right. uh, which is not, which are somewhat unique kind of institutions of higher education, yeah, they, sort of outside the scope of how we usually talk about these things. Um, how much, and the, and the courts have said very little um, about Congress's authority specifically to regulate uh, military academies um, as, as such. Um, so what, what's your general view about the scope of congressional authority to uh, intervene in military academies, for example, to outlaw teaching of uh, critical race theory that's, in that That's context? a very good question. It's a much trickier area of regulation and judicial intervention. Um, I used to be a JAG officer, an army lawyer. I have conducted army mandated diversity training, for example, in connection with the end of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, you know, I've done other kinds of training in connection with the sex abuse, sex assault problem in the military that is, um, you know, mandated by command authorities. Uh, as a general matter, you know, the courts are going to be hands off on that stuff if it's deemed to be, you know, vital to the good order and discipline of the force. And so um, that's an area where the constitutional, uh, the, con the constitutional, the constraints on free expression in the military are much different than they are in almost any other walk of life. Yeah, it's one thing we often don't appreciate is how different these circumstances are and in, in different kinds of institutional environments. And it matters <laughs> what the details look like and, and where exactly we're talking about um, uh, that require um, us to, to think about these things more carefully. So I guess I, I do want to uh, sort of leave it there. I really appreciate um, uh, your willingness to um, uh, talk this through. Uh, as you say, you've been involved in these disputes for a long time and, and uh uh, including though this uh, uh, recent one. And so uh, I really appreciate your helping us sort of think through uh, some of the issues associated with these um, uh, critical race theory bills and, and some of the current disputes. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. And, and you know, I one last thought um, that I think is really important in the higher ed context. If you're a person who holds a minority perspective in higher education, um, there's no real prospect on the horizon to not just to be able to protect your legal right to say what you say, but to also provide a degree of social comfort for you to say what you want to say. And so I think a lot of folks, uh, especially those, and, and I speak uh, you know, to those, I'm evangelical. I was part of a very small law school Christian fellowship and, and, and the law school, there's just no substitute um, for having a baseline level of sort of gumption <laughs> And I don't even want to use the word courage because courage right. implies that, you know, it, it courage is too much of a word, right, but right. you know, a baseline level of fortitude 
to say what you believe yeah um with the full knowledge that sometimes that's going to be un unpleasant um and i'm not just saying say whatever's on your mind no matter how you say it you know speak with grace and 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 humility but uh speaking with grace and humility speak say something <laughs> right yeah rules and policy are important when it comes to uh thinking about a free speech environment but it's it's not all about that it's also as you say it's a it's a broader culture it's what people individually are willing to do all of which is crucial to really making uh an information environment including universities uh, actually work very well um so yeah it's a, it's a terribly important point um so, so thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, listeners can find David French's uh, writings on various topics, including issues of campus free speech um, at The Dispatch. Um, and his podcast, Breaking Down Current Legal Controversies, is called um, Advisory Opinions. Um, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss episodes and rate this on iTunes, uh, which help others find our conversations about campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.